Section six of The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six. The lady patroness of Michaelis, the ticket of leave apostle of humanitarian hopes, was one of the most influential and distinguished connections of the assistant commissioner's wife, whom she called Annie, and treated still rather as a not very wise and utterly inexperienced young girl. But she had consented to accept him on a friendly footing, which was by no means the case with all of his wife's influential connections. Married young and splendidly, at some remote epoch of the past, she had had for a time a close view of great affairs, and even of some great men. She herself was a great lady. Old now in the number of her years, she had that sort of exceptional temperament which defies time with scornful disregard, as if it were a rather vulgar convention submitted to by the mass of inferior mankind. Many other conventions easier to set aside, alas, failed to obtain her recognition, also on temperamental grounds, either because they bored her, or because they stood in the way of her scorns and sympathies. Admiration was a sentiment unknown to her. It was one of the secret griefs of her most noble husband against her first, as always more or less tainted with mediocrity, and next as being, in a way, an admission of inferiority. And both were frankly inconceivable to her nature. To be fearlessly outspoken in her opinions came easily to her, since she judged solely from the standpoint of her social position. She was equally untrammelled in her actions, and as her tactfulness proceeded from genuine humanity, her bodily vigour remained remarkable and her superiority was serene and cordial. Three generations had admired her infinitely, and the last she was likely to see had pronounced her a wonderful woman. Meantime intelligent, with a sort of lofty simplicity, and curious at heart, but not, like many women, merely of social gossip, she amused her age by attracting within her ken, through the power of her great, almost historical social prestige, everything that rose above the dead level of mankind, lawfully or unlawfully, by position, wit, audacity, fortune or misfortune. Royal Highnesses, artists, men of science, young statesmen and charlatans of all ages and conditions, who, unsubstantial and light, bobbing up like corks, show best the direction of the surface currents, had been welcomed in that house, listened to, penetrated, understood, appraised, for her own edification. In her own words, she liked to watch what the world was coming to. And as she had a practical mind, her judgment of men and things, though based on special prejudices, was seldom totally wrong, and almost never wrong-headed. Her drawing-room was probably the only place in the wide world where an assistant commissioner of police could meet a convict liberated on a ticket of leave on other than professional and official ground. Who had brought Michaelis there one afternoon the assistant commissioner did not remember very well. He had a notion it must have been a certain member of Parliament of illustrious parentage and unconventional sympathies, which were the standing joke of the comic papers. The notabilities, and even the simple notorieties of the day, brought each other freely to that temple of an old woman's not ignoble curiosity. You could never guess whom you were likely to come upon being received in semi-privacy, within the faded blue silk and gilt frame screen, 
making a cosy nook for a couch and a few armchairs in the great drawing-room, with its hum of voices and the groups of people seated or standing in the light of six tall windows. Michaelis had been the object of a revulsion of popular sentiment, the same sentiment which years ago had applauded the ferocity of the life-sentence passed upon him for complicity in a rather mad attempt to rescue some prisoners from a police-van. The plan of the conspirators had been to shoot down the horses and overpower the escort. Unfortunately, one of the police constables got shot too. He left a wife and three small children, and the death of that man aroused through the length and breadth of a realm for whose defence, welfare and glory, men die every day as matter of duty, an outburst of furious indignation, of a raging implacable pity for the victim. Three ringleaders got hanged. Michaelis, young and slim, locksmith by trade, and great frequenter of evening schools, did not even know that anybody had been killed, his part with a few others being to force open the door at the back of the special conveyance. When arrested he had a bunch of skeleton keys in one pocket, a heavy chisel in another, and a short crowbar in his hand, neither more nor less than a burglar. But no burglar would have received such a heavy sentence. The death of the constable had made him miserable at heart, but the failure of the plot also. He did not conceal either of these sentiments from his impanelled countrymen, and that sort of compunction appeared shockingly imperfect to the crammed court. The judge, on passing sentence, commented feelingly upon the depravity and callousness of the young prisoner. That made the groundless fame of his condemnation. The fame of his release was made for him on no better grounds by people who wished to exploit the sentimental aspect of his imprisonment, either for purposes of their own, or for no intelligible purpose. He let them do so in the innocence of his heart and the simplicity of his mind. Nothing that happened to him individually had any importance. He was like those saintly men whose personality is lost in the contemplation of their faith. His ideas were not in the nature of convictions. They were inaccessible to reasoning. They formed, in all their contradictions and obscurities, an invincible and humanitarian creed, which he confessed, rather than preached, with an obstinate gentleness, a smile of pacific assurance on his lips, and his candid blue eyes cast down because the sight of faces troubled his inspiration developed in solitude. In that characteristic attitude, pathetic in his grotesque and incurable obesity, which he had to drag like a galley-slave's bullet to the end of his days, the assistant commissioner of police beheld the ticket-of-leave apostle filling a privileged armchair within the screen. He sat there by the head of the old lady's couch, mild-voiced and quiet, with no more self-consciousness than a very small child, and with something of a child's charm, the appealing charm of trustfulness. Confident of the future, whose secret ways had been revealed to him within the four walls of a well-known penitentiary, he had no reason to look with suspicion upon anybody. If he could not give the great and curious lady a very definite idea as to what the world was coming to, he had managed without effort to impress her by his unembittered faith, by the sterling quality of his optimism. A certain simplicity of thought is common to serene souls at both ends of the social scale. The great lady was simple in her own way. His beliefs and views had nothing in them to shock or startle her, since she judged them from the standpoint of her lofty position. 
Indeed, her sympathies were easily accessible to a man of that sort. She was not an exploiting capitalist herself. She was, as it were, above the play of economic conditions. And she had a great capacity of pity for the more obvious forms of common human miseries, precisely because she was such a complete stranger to them, that she had to translate her conception into terms of mental suffering, before she could grasp the notion of their cruelty. The Assistant Commissioner remembered very well the conversation between these two. He had listened in silence. It was something as exciting in a way, and even touching in its foredoomed futility, as the efforts at moral intercourse between the inhabitants of remote planets. But this grotesque incarnation of humanitarian passion appealed, somehow, to one's imagination. At last Michaelis rose, and taking the great lady's extended hand, shook it, retained it for a moment in his great cushioned palm, with unembarrassed friendliness, and turned upon the semi-private nook of the drawing-room his back, vast and square, and as if distended under the short tweed jacket. Glancing about in serene benevolence, he waddled along to the distant door between the knots of other visitors. The murmur of conversations paused on his passage. He smiled innocently at a tall, brilliant girl, whose eyes met his accidentally, and went out unconscious of the glances following him across the room. Michaelis's first appearance in the world was a success, a success of esteem unmarred by a single murmur of derision. The interrupted conversations were resumed in their proper tone, grave or light. Only a well-set-up, long-limbed, active-looking man of forty, talking with two ladies near a window, remarked aloud, with an unexpected depth of feeling, Eighteen stone, I should say, and not five foot six. Poor fellow! It's terrible, terrible!" The lady of the house, gazing absently at the assistant commissioner, left alone with her on the private side of the screen, seemed to be rearranging her mental impressions behind her thoughtful immobility of a handsome old face. Men with grey moustaches and full, healthy, vaguely smiling countenances approached, circling round the screen two mature women with a matronly air of gracious resolution, a clean-shaved individual with sunken cheeks, and dangling a gold-mounted eyeglass on a broad black ribbon with an old-world dandified effect. A silence deferential, but full of reserves, reigned for a moment, and then the great lady exclaimed, not with resentment, but with a sort of protesting indignation, "'And that officially is supposed to be a revolutionist! What nonsense!' She looked hard at the assistant commissioner, who murmured apologetically, "'Not a dangerous one, perhaps.' "'Not dangerous? I should think not indeed. He is a mere believer. It's the temperament of a saint,' declared the great lady in a firm tone. "'And they kept him shut up for twenty years. One shudders at the stupidity of it. And now they have let him out, everybody belonging to him has gone away somewhere or dead. His parents are dead. The girl he was to marry has died while he was in prison. He has lost the skill necessary for his manual occupation. He told me all this himself with the sweetest patience. But then, he said, he had had plenty of time to think things out for himself. A pretty compensation. If that's the stuff revolutionists are made of, some of us may well go on their knees to them," she continued in a slightly bantering voice while the banal society smiles hardened on the worldly faces, turned towards her with conventional deference. 
the poor creature is obviously no longer in a position to take care of himself. Somebody will have to look after him a little." "'He should be recommended to follow a treatment of some sort,' the soldierly voice of the active-looking man was heard advising earnestly from a distance. He was in the pink of condition for his age, and even the texture of his long frock-coat had a character of elastic soundness, as if it were a living tissue. "'The man is virtually a cripple,' he added, with unmistakable feeling. Other voices, as if glad of the opening, murmured hasty compassion. Quite startling, monstrous, most painful to see. The lank man, with the eyeglass on a broad ribbon, pronounced mincingly the word, grotesque, whose justness was appreciated by those standing near him. They smiled at each other. The assistant commissioner had expressed no opinion, then or later, his position making it impossible for him to ventilate any independent view of a ticket-of-leave convict. But in truth, he shared the view of his wife's friend and patron, that Michaelis was a humanitarian sentimentalist, a little mad, but upon the whole incapable of hurting a fly intentionally. So when that name cropped up suddenly in this vexing bomb affair, he realised all the danger of it for the ticket-of-leave apostle, and his mind reverted at once to the old lady's well-established infatuation. Her arbitrary kindness would not brook patiently any interference with Michaelis's freedom. It was a deep, calm, convinced infatuation. She had not only felt him to be inoffensive, but she had said so, which last, by a confusion of her absolutist mind, became a sort of incontrovertible demonstration. It was as if the monstrosity of the man, with his candid infant's eyes and a fat angelic smile, had fascinated her. She had come to believe almost his theory of the future, since it was not repugnant to her prejudices. She disliked the new element of plutocracy in the social compound, and industrialism as a method of human development appeared to her singularly repulsive in its mechanical and unfeeling character. The humanitarian hopes of the mild Michaelis tended not towards utter destruction, but merely towards the complete economic ruin of the system. And she did not really see where was the moral harm of it. It would do away with all the multitude of the parvenus, whom she disliked and mistrusted, not because they had arrived anywhere—she denied that—but because of their profound unintelligence of the world, which was the primary cause of the crudity of their perceptions and the aridity of their hearts. With the annihilation of all capital they would vanish too, but universal ruin, providing it was universal, as it was revealed to Michaelis, would leave the social values untouched. The disappearance of the last piece of money could not affect people of position. She could not conceive how it could affect her position, for instance. She had developed these discoveries to the assistant commissioner, with all the serene fearlessness of an old woman who had escaped the blight of indifference. He had made for himself the rule to receive everything of that sort in a silence, which he took care from policy and inclination not to make offensive. He had an affection for the aged disciple of Michaelis, a complex sentiment depending a little on her prestige, on her personality, but most of all on the instinct of flattered gratitude. He felt himself really liked in her house. She was kindness personified. And she was practically wise, too, after the manner of experienced women. She made his married life much easier than it would have been without her generously full recognition of his rights as Annie's husband. Her influence upon his wife, 
a woman devoured by all sorts of small selfishnesses, small envies, small jealousies, was excellent. Unfortunately, both her kindness and her wisdom were of unreasonable complexion, distinctly feminine, and difficult to deal with. She remained a perfect woman all along her full tale of years, and not, as some of them do become, a sort of slippery, pestilential old man in petticoats. And it was as of a woman that he thought of her, the specially choice incarnation of the feminine, wherein is recruited the tender, ingenuous, and fierce bodyguard for all sorts of men who talk under the influence of an emotion, true or fraudulent, for preachers, seers, prophets, or reformers. Appreciating the distinguished and good friend of his wife, and himself, in that way, the assistant commissioner became alarmed at the convict Michaelis's possible fate. Once arrested on suspicion of being in some way, however remote, a party to this outrage, the man could hardly escape being sent back to finish his sentence at least. And that would kill him. He would never come out alive. The assistant commissioner made a reflection extremely unbecoming his official position, without being really creditable to his humanity. If the fellow is laid hold of again, he thought, she will never forgive me. The frankness of such a secretly outspoken thought could not go without some derisive self-criticism. No man engaged in a work he does not like can preserve many saving illusions about himself. The distaste, the absence of glamour, extend from the occupation to the personality. It is only when our appointed activities seem, by a lucky accident, to obey the particular earnestness of our temperament, that we can taste the comfort of complete self-deception. The assistant commissioner did not like his work at home. The police work he had been engaged on in a distant part of the globe had the saving character of an irregular sort of warfare, or at least the risk and excitement of open-air sport. His real abilities, which were mainly of an administrative order, were combined with an adventurous disposition. Chained to a desk in the thick of four millions of men, he considered himself the victim of an ironic fate—the same, no doubt, which had brought about his marriage with a woman exceptionally sensitive in the matter of colonial climate, besides other limitations testifying to the delicacy of her nature, and her tastes. Though he judged his alarm sardonically, he did not dismiss the improper thought from his mind. The instinct of self-preservation was strong within him. On the contrary, he repeated it mentally with profane emphasis and a fuller precision. Damn it! If that infernal heat has his way, the fellow will die in prison smothered in his own fat, and she'll never forgive me. His black, narrow figure, with the white band of the collar under the silvery gleams on the close-cropped hair at the back of the head, remained motionless. The silence had lasted such a long time that Chief Inspector Heat ventured to clear his throat. This noise produced its effect. The zealous and intelligent officer was asked by his superior, whose back remained turned to him immovably. "'You connect Michaelis with this affair?' Chief Inspector Heat was very positive, but cautious. "'Well, sir,' he said, "'we have enough to go upon. A man like that has no business to be at large, anyhow.' "'You will want some conclusive evidence,' came the observation in a murmur. Chief Inspector Heat raised his eyebrows at the black, narrow back, which remained obstinately presented to his intelligence and his zeal. "'There will be no difficulty in getting up sufficient evidence against him,' 
he said, with virtuous complacency. "'You may trust me for that, sir,' he added, quite unnecessarily, out of the fullness of his heart, for it seemed to him an excellent thing to have that man in hand, to be thrown down to the public, should it think it fit to roar with any special indignation in this case. It was impossible to say yet whether it would roar or not. That, in the last instance, depended, of course, on the newspaper press. But in any case, Chief Inspector Heat, purveyor of prisons by trade, and a man of legal instincts, did logically believe that incarceration was the proper fate for every declared enemy of the law. In the strength of that conviction he committed a fault of tact. He allowed himself a little conceited laugh, and repeated, "'Trust me for that, sir.' This was too much for the forced calmness under which the Assistant Commissioner had, for upwards of eighteen months, concealed his irritation with the system, and the subordinates of his office. A square peg forced into a round hole, he had felt like a daily outrage that long-established smooth roundness, into which a man of less sharply angular shape would have fitted himself, with voluptuous acquiescence, after a shrug or two. What he resented most was just the necessity of taking so much on trust. At the little laugh of Chief Inspector Heats, he spun swiftly on his heels, as if whirled away from the window-pane by an electric shock. He caught on the latter's face, not only the complacency proper to the occasion lurking under the moustache, but the vestiges of experimental watchfulness in the round eyes, which had been, no doubt, fastened on his back, and now met his glance for a second, before the intent character of their stare had the time to change to a merely startled appearance. The Assistant Commissioner of Police had really some qualifications for his post. Suddenly his suspicion was awakened. It is but fair to say that his suspicions of the police methods, unless the police happened to be a semi-military body organised by himself, was not difficult to arouse. If it ever slumbered from sheer weariness it was but lightly, and his appreciation of Chief Inspector Heat's zeal and ability, moderate in itself, excluded all notion of moral confidence. "'He's up to something,' he exclaimed mentally, and at once became angry. Crossing over to his desk with headlong strides, he sat down violently. "'Here I am stuck in a litter of paper,' he reflected, with unreasonable resentment, supposed to hold all the threads in my hands, and yet I can but hold what is put in my hand and nothing else, and they can fasten the other ends of the threads where they please." He raised his head, and turned towards his subordinate a long, meagre face, with the accentuated features of an energetic Don Quixote. "'Now what is it you've got up your sleeve?' The other stared. He stared without winking in a perfect immobility of his round eyes, as he was used to stare at the various members of the criminal class, when, after being duly cautioned, they made their statements in the tones of injured innocence, or false simplicity, or sullen resignation. But behind that professional and stony fixity there was some surprise, too, for in such a tone, combining nicely the note of contempt and impatience, Chief Inspector Heat, the right-hand man of the department, was not used to be addressed. He began in a procrastinating manner like a man taken unawares by a new and unexpected experience. "'What I've got against that man Michaelis, you mean, sir?' The Assistant Commissioner watched the bullet head, the points of that Norse rover's moustache, falling below the line of the heavy jaw, the whole full and pale physiognomy, 
whose determined character was marred by too much flesh, at the cunning wrinkles radiating from the outer corners of the eyes, and in that purposeful contemplation of the valuable and trusted officer he drew a conviction so sudden that it moved him like an inspiration. "'I have reason to think that when you came into this room,' he said in measured tones, "'it was not Michaelis who was in your mind, not principally, perhaps not at all.' "'You have reason to think, sir,' muttered Chief Inspector Heat, with every appearance of astonishment, which, up to a certain point, was genuine enough. He had discovered in this affair a delicate and perplexing side, forcing upon the discoverer a certain amount of insincerity, that sort of insincerity which, under the names of skill, prudence, discretion, turns up at one point or another in most human affairs. He felt at the moment like a tightrope artist might feel, if suddenly, in the middle of the performance, the manager of the music-hall were to rush out of the proper managerial seclusion and begin to shake the rope. Indignation, the sense of moral insecurity engendered by such a treacherous proceeding, joined to the immediate apprehension of a broken neck, would, in the colloquial phrase, put him in a state. And there would also be some scandalised concern for his art, too, since a man must identify himself with something more tangible than his own personality, and establish his pride somewhere, either in his social position, or in the quality of the work he is obliged to do or simply in the superiority of the idleness he may be fortunate enough to enjoy. "'Yes,' said the Assistant Commissioner. "'I have. I do not mean to say that you have not thought of Michaelis at all, but you are giving the fact you've mentioned a prominence which strikes me as not quite candid, Inspector Heat. If that is really the track of discovery, why haven't you followed it up at once, either personally, or by sending one of your men to that village?' "'Do you think, sir, I have failed in my duty there?' the Chief Inspector asked, in a tone which he sought to make simply reflective. Forced unexpectedly to concentrate his faculties upon the task of preserving his balance, he had seized upon that point, and exposed himself to a rebuke, for, the Assistant Commissioner frowning slightly, observed that this was a very improper remark to make. "'But since you've made it,' he continued coldly, "'I'll tell you that this is not my meaning.' He paused with a straight glance of his sunken eyes, which was a full equivalent of the unspoken termination, and you know it. The head of the so-called Special Crimes Department, debarred by his position from going out of doors personally in quest of secrets locked up in guilty breasts, had a propensity to exercise his considerable gifts for the detection of incriminating truth upon his own subordinates. That peculiar instinct could hardly be called a weakness. It was natural. He was a born detective. It had unconsciously governed his choice of a career, and if it ever failed him in life, it was perhaps in the one exceptional circumstance of his marriage, which was also natural. It fed, since it could not roam abroad, upon the human material which was brought to it in its official seclusion. We can never cease to be ourselves. His elbow on the desk, his thin legs crossed, and nursing his cheek in the palm of his meagre hand, the assistant commissioner in charge of the special crimes branch was getting hold of the case with growing interest. His chief inspector, if not an absolutely worthy foeman of his penetration, was at any rate the most worthy of all within his reach. A mistrust of established reputations was strictly in character with the assistant commissioner's ability as detector. 
his memory evoked a certain old, fat and wealthy native chief in the distant colony, whom it was a tradition for the successive colonial governors to trust and make much of as a firm friend and supporter of the order and legality established by white men. Whereas, when examined sceptically, he was found out to be principally his own good friend and nobody else's. Not precisely a traitor, but still a man of many dangerous reservations in his fidelity, caused by a due regard for his own advantage, comfort and safety. A fellow of some innocence in his naive duplicity, but none the less dangerous. He took some finding out. He was physically a big man, too, and, allowing for the difference of colour, of course, Chief Inspector Heat's appearance recalled him to the memory of his superior. It was not the eyes, nor yet the lips exactly. It was bizarre. But does not Alfred Wallace relate in his famous book on the Malay archipelago how, amongst the Aru Islanders, he discovered in an old and naked savage with a sooty skin a peculiar resemblance to a dear friend at home? For the first time since he took up his appointment, the Assistant Commissioner felt as if he were going to do some real work for his salary and that was a pleasurable sensation. "'I'll turn him inside out like an old glove,' thought the Assistant Commissioner, with his eyes resting pensively upon Chief Inspector Heat. "'No, that was not my thought,' he began again. "'There is no doubt about you knowing your business, no doubt at all, and that's precisely why I—' He stopped short, and, changing his tone, "'What could you bring up against Michaelis of a definite nature?' I mean apart from the fact that the two men under suspicion—you're certain there were two of them—came last from a railway station within three miles of the village where Michaelis is living now. "'This by itself is enough for us to go upon, sir, with that sort of man,' said the Chief Inspector, with returning composure. The slight approving movement of the Assistant Commissioner's head went far to pacify the resentful astonishment of the renowned officer. For Chief Inspector Heat was a kind man an excellent husband, a devoted father, and the public and departmental confidence he enjoyed, acting favourably upon an amiable nature, disposed him to feel friendly towards the successive assistant commissioners he had seen pass through that very room. There had been three in his time. The first one, a soldierly, abrupt, red-faced person, with white eyebrows and an explosive temper, could be managed with a silken thread. He left on reaching the age limit. The second, a perfect gentleman, knowing his own and everybody else's place to a nicety, on resigning to take up a higher appointment out of England, got decorated for, really, Inspector Heat's services. To work with him had been a pride and a pleasure. The third, a bit of a dark horse from the first, was, at the end of eighteen months, something of a dark horse still to the department. Upon the whole, Chief Inspector Heat believed him to be in the main harmless—odd-looking, but harmless. He was speaking now, and the Chief Inspector listened with outward deference—which means nothing, being a matter of duty—and inwardly with benevolent toleration. Michaelis reported himself before leaving London for the country. "'Yes, sir, he did.' "'And what may he be doing there?' continued the Assistant Commissioner who was perfectly informed on that point. Fitted with painful tightness into an old wooden armchair, before a worm-eaten oak table in an upstairs room of a four-roomed cottage with a roof of moss-grown tiles, Michaelis was writing night and day in a shaky, slanting hand, 
that autobiography of a prisoner, which was to be like a book of revelation in the history of mankind. The conditions of confined space, seclusion and solitude in a small four-roomed cottage were favourable to his inspiration. It was like being in prison, except that one was never disturbed for the odious purpose of taking exercise, according to the tyrannical regulations of his own home in the penitentiary. He could not tell whether the sun still shone on the earth or not. The perspiration of the literary labour dropped from his brow. A delightful enthusiasm urged him on. It was the liberation of his inner life, the letting out of his soul into the wide world. And the zeal of his guileless vanity, first awakened by the offer of five hundred pounds from a publisher, seemed something predestined and holy. It would be, of course, most desirable to be informed exactly," insisted the Assistant Commissioner uncandidly. Chief Inspector Heat, conscious of renewed irritation at this display of scrupulousness, said that the country police had been notified from the first of Michaelis's arrival, and that a full report could be obtained in a few hours. A wire to the superintendent. Thus he spoke, rather slowly, while his mind seemed already to be weighing the consequences. A slight knitting of the brow was the outward sign of this. But he was interrupted by a question. "'You've sent that wire already?' "'No, sir,' he answered, as if surprised. The Assistant Commissioner uncrossed his legs suddenly. The briskness of that movement contrasted with the casual way in which he threw out a suggestion. "'Would you think that Michaelis had anything to do with the preparation of that bomb, for instance?' The Chief Inspector assumed a reflective manner. "'I wouldn't say so. There's no necessity to say anything at present. He associates with men who are classed as dangerous. He was made a delegate of the Red Committee less than a year after his release on licence. A sort of compliment, I suppose." And the Chief Inspector laughed a little angrily, a little scornfully. With a man of that sort, scrupulousness was a misplaced and even an illegal sentiment. The celebrity bestowed upon Michaelis on his release two years ago by some emotional journalists in want of special copy, had rankled ever since in his breast. It was perfectly legal to arrest that man on the barest suspicion. It was legal and expedient on the face of it. His two former chiefs would have seen the point at once, whereas this one, without saying either yes or no, sat there as if lost in a dream. Moreover, besides being legal and expedient, the arrest of Michaelis solved a little personal difficulty which worried Chief Inspector Heat somewhat. This difficulty had its bearing upon his reputation, upon his comfort, and even upon the efficient performance of his duties. For, if Michaelis no doubt knew something about this outrage, the Chief Inspector was fairly certain that he did not know too much. This was just as well. He knew much less, the Chief Inspector was positive, than certain other individuals he had in his mind, but whose arrest seemed to him inexpedient, besides being a more complicated matter, on account of the rules of the game. The rules of the game did not protect so much Michaelis, who was an ex-convict. It would be stupid not to take advantage of legal facilities, and the journalists who had written him up with emotional gush would be ready to write him down with emotional indignation. This prospect, viewed with confidence, had the attraction of a personal triumph for Chief Inspector Heat. And deep down in his blameless bosom of an average married citizen, 
almost unconscious but potent nevertheless, the dislike of being compelled by events to meddle with the desperate ferocity of the Professor had its say. This dislike had been strengthened by the chance meeting in the lane. The encounter did not leave behind with Chief Inspector Heat that satisfactory sense of superiority the members of the police force get from the unofficial but intimate side of their intercourse with the criminal classes, by which the vanity of power is soothed, and the vulgar love of domination over our fellow-creatures is flattered as worthily as it deserves. The perfect anarchist was not recognised as a fellow-creature by Chief Inspector Heat. He was impossible, a mad dog to be left alone. Not that the Chief Inspector was afraid of him. On the contrary, he meant to have him some day. But not yet. He meant to get hold of him in his own time, properly and effectively according to the rules of the game. The present was not the right time for attempting that feat, not the right time for many reasons, personal and of public service. This being the strong feeling of Inspector Heat, it appeared to him just and proper that this affair should be shunted off its obscure and inconvenient track, leading goodness knows where, into a quiet and lawful siding called Michaelis. And he repeated, as if reconsidering the suggestion conscientiously, "'The bomb! No, I would not say that exactly. We may never find that out. But it's clear that he is connected with this in some way, which we can find out without much trouble.' His countenance had that look of grave, overbearing indifference, once well known and much dreaded by the better sort of thieves. Chief Inspector Heat, though what is called a man, was not a smiling animal. But his inward state was that of satisfaction at the passively receptive attitude of the Assistant Commissioner, who murmured gently, "'And you really think that the investigation should be made in that direction?' "'I do, sir.' "'Quite convinced.' I am, sir. That's the true line for us to take." The Assistant Commissioner withdrew the support of his hand from his reclining head with a suddenness that, considering his languid attitude, seemed to menace his whole person with collapse. But, on the contrary, he sat up, extremely alert, behind the great writing-table on which his hand had fallen with the sound of a sharp blow. "'What I want to know is what put it out of your head till now?' "'Put it out of my head?' repeated the Chief Inspector very slowly. "'Yes, till you were called into this room, you know.' The Chief Inspector felt as if the air between his clothing and his skin had become unpleasantly hot. It was the sensation of an unprecedented and incredible experience. "'Of course,' he said, exaggerating the deliberation of his utterance to the utmost limits of possibility. "'If there is a reason, of which I know nothing, for not interfering with the convict Michaelis. Perhaps it's just as well I didn't start the county police after him." This took such a long time to say that the unflagging attention of the Assistant Commissioner seemed a wonderful feat of endurance. His retort came without delay. "'No reason whatever that I know of. Come, Chief Inspector, this finessing with me is highly improper on your part—highly improper. And it's also unfair, you know. You shouldn't leave me to puzzle things out for myself like this. Really, I am surprised." He paused, then added smoothly, "'I need scarcely tell you that this conversation is altogether unofficial.' These words were far from pacifying the Chief Inspector. The indignation of a betrayed tightrope performer was strong within him. 
In his pride of a trusted servant, he was affected by the assurance that the rope was not shaken for the purpose of breaking his neck, as by an exhibition of impudence. As if anybody were afraid. Assistant commissioners come and go, but a valuable chief inspector is not an ephemeral office phenomenon. He was not afraid of getting a broken neck. To have his performance spoiled was more than enough to account for the glow of honest indignation. And as thought is no respecter of persons, the thought of Chief Inspector Heat took a threatening and prophetic shape. "'You, my boy,' he said to himself, keeping his round and habitually roving eyes fastened upon the Assistant Commissioner's face. "'You, my boy, you don't know your place, and your place won't know you very long either, I bet.' As if in provoking answer to that thought, something like the ghost of an amiable smile passed on the lips of the Assistant Commissioner. His manner was easy and business-like, while he persisted in administering another shake to the tightrope. "'Let us come now to what you have discovered on the spot, Chief Inspector,' he said. "'A fool and his job are soon parted,' went on the train of prophetic thought in Chief Inspector Heat's head. But it was immediately followed by the reflection that a higher official, even when fired out—this was the precise image—still has the time as he flies through the door to launch a nasty kick at the shin-bones of a subordinate. Without softening very much the basilisk nature of his stare, he said impassively, "'We are coming to that part of my investigation, sir.' "'That's right. Well, what have you brought away from it?' The Chief Inspector, who had made up his mind to jump off the rope, came to the ground with gloomy frankness. "'I've brought away an address,' he said pulling out of his pocket without haste a singed rag of dark blue cloth. "'This belongs to the overcoat the fellow who got himself blown to pieces was wearing. Of course, the overcoat may not have been his, and may even have been stolen. But that's not at all probable if you look at this.' The Chief Inspector, stepping up to the table, smoothed out carefully the rag of blue cloth. He had picked it up from the repulsive heap in the mortuary, because a tailor's name is found sometimes under the collar. It is not often of much use, but still. He only half expected to find anything useful, but certainly he did not expect to find—not under the collar at all, but stitched carefully on the underside of the lapel—a square piece of calico with an address written on it in marking ink. The Chief Inspector removed his smoothing hand. "'I carried it off with me without anybody taking notice,' he said. "'I thought it best. It can always be produced if required.' The Assistant Commissioner, rising a little in his chair, pulled the cloth over to his side of the table. He sat looking at it in silence. Only the number 32 and the name of Brett Street were written in marking ink on a piece of calico slightly larger than an ordinary cigarette paper. He was genuinely surprised. "'Can't understand why he should have gone about labelled like this,' he said, looking up at Chief Inspector Heat. "'It's a most extraordinary thing.' I met once in the smoking-room of a hotel an old gentleman, who went about with his name and address sewn on in all his coats, in case of an accident or sudden illness," said the Chief Inspector. He professed to be eighty-four years old, but he didn't look his age. He told me he was also afraid of losing his memory suddenly, like those people he has been reading of in the papers. A question from the Assistant Commissioner, who wanted to know what was Number 32 Brett Street, interrupted that reminiscence abruptly. The Chief Inspector, 
driven down to the ground by unfair artifices, had elected to walk the path of unreserved openness. If he believed firmly that to know too much was not good for the department, the judicious holding back of knowledge was as far as his loyalty dared to go for the good of the service. If the assistant commissioner wanted to mismanage this affair, nothing, of course, could prevent him. But on his own part, he now saw no reason for a display of alacrity. So he answered concisely, "'It's a shop, sir.' The assistant commissioner, with his eyes lowered on the rag of blue cloth, waited for more information. As that did not come, he proceeded to obtain it by a series of questions propounded with gentle patience. Thus he acquired an idea of the nature of Mr. Verloc's commerce, of his personal appearance, and heard at last his name. In a pause the assistant commissioner raised his eyes, and discovered some animation on the chief inspector's face. They looked at each other in silence. "'Of course,' said the latter, "'the department has no record of that man.' "'Did any of my predecessors have any knowledge of what you have told me now?' asked the assistant commissioner, putting his elbows on the table and raising his joined hands before his face, as if about to offer prayer, only that his eyes had not a pious expression. "'No, sir, certainly not. What would have been the object? That sort of man could never be produced publicly to any good purpose. It was sufficient for me to know who he was, and to make use of him in a way that could be used publicly.' "'And do you think that sort of private knowledge consistent with the official position you occupy?' "'Perfectly, sir. I think it's quite proper. I will take the liberty to tell you, sir, that it makes me what I am, and I am looked upon as a man who knows his work. It's a private affair of my own. A personal friend of mine in the French police gave me the hint that the fellow was an embassy spy. Private friendship, private information, private use of it—that's how I look upon it." The assistant commissioner, after remarking to himself that the mental state of the renowned chief inspector, seemed to affect the outline of his lower jaw, as if the lively sense of his high professional distinction had been located in that part of his anatomy, dismissed the point for the moment with a calm, I see. Then, leaning his cheek on his joined hands, Well, then, speaking privately, if you like, how long have you been in private touch with this embassy spy? To this inquiry, the private answer of the chief inspector, so private that it was never shaped into audible words, was, long before you were even thought of for your place here. The so-to-speak public utterance was much more precise. I saw him for the first time in my life a little more than seven years ago, when two Imperial Highnesses and the Imperial Chancellor were on a visit here. I was put in charge of all the arrangements for looking after them. Baron Stott Wardenheim was ambassador then. He was a very nervous old gentleman. One evening, Three days before the Guildhall banquet, he sent word that he wanted to see me for a moment. I was downstairs, and the carriages were at the door to take the Imperial Highnesses and the Chancellor to the Opera. I went up at once. I found the Baron walking up and down his bedroom in a pitiable state of distress, squeezing his hands together. He assured me he had the fullest confidence in our police and in my abilities, but he had there a man just come over from Paris, whose information could be trusted implicitly. He wanted me to hear what that man had to say. He took me at once into a dressing-room next door, where I saw a big fellow in a heavy overcoat sitting all alone on a chair, and holding his hat and stick in one hand. The Baron said to him in French, "'Speak, my friend.' The light in that room was not very good. 
I talked with him for some five minutes, perhaps. He certainly gave me a piece of very startling news. Then the Baron took me aside nervously to praise him up to me, and when I turned round again I discovered that the fellow had vanished like a ghost. Got up and sneaked out down some back stairs, I suppose. There was no time to run after him, as I had to hurry off after the ambassador down the great staircase, and see the party started safe for the opera. However, I acted upon the information that very night. Whether it was perfectly correct or not, it did look serious enough. Very likely it saved us from an ugly trouble on the day of the imperial visit to the city. Some time after, a month or two after my promotion to chief inspector, my attention was attracted to a big burly man, I thought I had seen somewhere before, coming out in a hurry from a jeweller's shop in the Strand. I went after him, as it was on my way towards Charing Cross, and there, seeing one of our detectives across the road, I beckoned him over, and pointed out the fellow to him, with instructions to watch his movements for a couple of days, and then report to me. No later than next afternoon, my man turned up to tell me that the fellow had married his landlady's daughter at a registrar's office that very day at 11.30 a.m., and had gone off with her to Margate for a week. Our man had seen the luggage being put on the cab. There were some old Paris labels on one of the bags. Somehow I couldn't get the fellow out of my head, and the very next time I had to go to Paris on service, I spoke about him to that friend of mine in the Paris police. My friend said, "'From what you tell me, I think you must mean a rather well-known hanger-on and emissary of the Revolutionary Red Committee. He says he is an Englishman by birth. We have an idea that he has been for a good few years now a secret agent of one of the foreign embassies in London.' This woke up my memory completely. He was the vanishing fellow I saw sitting on a chair in Baron Stopp-Wartenheim's bathroom. I told my friend he was quite right. The fellow was a secret agent to my certain knowledge. Afterwards, my friend took the trouble to ferret out the complete record of that man for me. I thought I had better know all there was to know, but I don't suppose you want to hear his history now, sir." The Assistant Commissioner shook his supported head. The history of your relations with that useful personage is the only thing that matters just now," he said, closing slowly his weary, deep-set eyes, and then opening them swiftly with a greatly refreshed glance. "'There's nothing official about them,' said the Chief Inspector bitterly. I went into his shop one evening, told him who I was, and reminded him of our first meeting. He didn't so much as twitch an eyebrow. He said that he was married and settled now and that all he wanted was not to be interfered in his little business. I took upon myself to promise him that, as long as he didn't go in for anything obviously outrageous, he would be left alone by the police. That was worth something to him, because a word from us to the custom-house people would have been enough to get some of these packages he gets from Paris and Brussels opened in Dover, with confiscation to follow for certain, and perhaps a prosecution as well at the end of it. That's a very precarious trade murmured the Assistant Commissioner. Why did he go in for that?" The Chief Inspector raised scornful eyebrows dispassionately. "'Most likely got a connection, friends on the Continent, amongst people who deal in such wares. They would be just the sort he would consort with. He's a lazy dog, too, like the rest of them. What do you get from him in exchange for your protection?' The Chief Inspector was not inclined to enlarge on the value of Mr. Verloc's services. He would not be much good to anybody but myself. One has got to know a good deal beforehand to make use of a man like that. I can understand the sort of hint he can give, and when I want a hint he can generally furnish it to me." 
The Chief Inspector lost himself suddenly in a discreet, reflective mood, and the Assistant Commissioner repressed a smile at the fleeting thought that the reputation of Chief Inspector Heat might possibly have been made in a great part by the secret agent Verloc. "'In a more general way of being of use, all our men of the Special Crimes Section on duty at Charing Cross and Victoria have orders to take careful notice of anybody they may see with him. He meets the new arrivals frequently, and afterwards keeps track of them. He seems to have been told off for that sort of duty. When I want an address in a hurry, I can always get it from him. Of course, I know how to manage our relations. I haven't seen him to speak to three times in the last two years. I drop him a line unsigned, and he answers me in the same way at my private address." From time to time the Assistant Commissioner gave an almost imperceptible nod. The Chief Inspector added that he did not suppose Mr. Verloc to be deep in the confidence of the prominent members of the Revolutionary International Council, but that he was generally trusted of that there could be no doubt. "'Whenever I had reason to think there was something in the wind,' he concluded, "'I've always found he could tell me something worth knowing.' The Assistant Commissioner made a significant remark. "'He failed you this time.' "'Neither had I wind of anything in any other way,' retorted Chief Inspector Heat. I asked him nothing, so he could tell me nothing. He isn't one of our men. It isn't as if he were in our pay." "'No,' muttered the Assistant Commissioner. "'He's a spy in the pay of a foreign government. We could never confess to him.' "'I must do my work in my own way,' declared the Chief Inspector. "'When it comes to that I would deal with the devil himself and take the consequences. There are things not fit for everybody to know." "'Your idea of secrecy seems to consist in keeping the chief of your department in the dark. That's stretching it perhaps a little too far, isn't it? He lives over his shop.' "'Who? Verloc? Oh, yes. He lives over his shop. The wife's mother, I fancy, lives with them.' "'Is the house watched?' "'Oh, dear, no. It wouldn't do. Certain people who come there are watched. My opinion is that he knows nothing of this affair.' "'How do you account for this?' The Assistant Commissioner nodded at the cloth rag lying before him on the table. "'I don't account for it at all, sir. It's simply unaccountable. It can't be explained by what I know.' The Chief Inspector made those admissions with the frankness of a man whose reputation is established as if on a rock. "'At any rate, not at this present moment. I think that the man who had most to do with it will turn out to be Michaelis.' "'You do?' "'Yes, sir, because I can answer for all the others.' What about that other man supposed to have escaped from the park? I should think he's far away by this time," opined the Chief Inspector. The Assistant Commissioner looked hard at him, and rose suddenly, as though having made up his mind to some course of action. As a matter of fact, he had that very moment succumbed to a fascinating temptation. The Chief Inspector heard himself dismissed with instructions to meet his superior early next morning for further consultation upon the case. He listened with an impenetrable face, and walked out of the room with measured steps. Whatever might have been the plans of the Assistant Commissioner, they had nothing to do with that desk-work, which was the bane of his existence, because of its confined nature and apparent lack of reality. It could not have had, or else the general air of alacrity that came upon the Assistant Commissioner would have been inexplicable. As soon as he was left alone, he looked for his hat impulsively, and put it on his head. Having done that, he sat down again to reconsider the whole matter. But, 
as his mind was already made up, this did not take long, and before Chief Inspector Heat had gone very far on the way home, he also left the building. End of section 6 Section 7 of The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The Assistant Commissioner walked along a short and narrow street, like a wet, muddy trench, then crossing a very broad thoroughfare, entered a public edifice, and sought speech with a young private secretary, unpaid, of a great personage. This fair, smooth-faced young man, whose symmetrically arranged hair gave him the air of a large and neat schoolboy, met the Assistant Commissioner's request with a doubtful look, and spoke with bated breath. "'Would he see you? I don't know about that. He has walked over from the house an hour ago to talk with the permanent under-secretary, and now he's ready to walk back again. He might have sent for him, but he does it for the sake of a little exercise, I suppose. It's all the exercise he can find time for while this session lasts. I don't complain. I rather enjoy these little strolls. He leans on my arm and doesn't open his lips. But, I say, he's very tired, and, well, not in the sweetest of tempers just now. It's in connection with that Greenwich affair. Oh, I say, he's very bitter against you people. But I will go and see, if you insist." "'Do. That's a good fellow,' said the Assistant Commissioner. The unpaid secretary admired this pluck. Composing for himself an innocent face, he opened a door, and went in with the assurance of a nice and privileged child. And presently he reappeared, with a nod to the Assistant Commissioner, who, passing through the same door left open for him, found himself with the great personage in a large room. Vast in bulk and stature, with a long white face, which, broadened at the base by a big double chin, appeared egg-shaped in the fringe of thin, greyish whisker, the great personage seemed an expanding man. Unfortunate from a tailoring point of view, the cross-folds in the middle of a buttoned black coat added to the impression, as if the fastenings of the garment were tried to the utmost. From the head, set upward on a thick neck, the eyes, with puffy lower lids, stared with a haughty droop on each side of a hooked, aggressive nose, nobly salient in the vast, pale circumference of the face. A shiny silk hat and a pair of worn gloves lying ready on the end of a long table looked expanded too, enormous. He stood on the hearth-rug in big, roomy boots, and uttered no word of greeting. "'I would like to know if this is the beginning of another dynamite campaign.' he asked at once, in a deep, very smooth voice. "'Don't go into details. I have no time for that.' The Assistant Commissioner's figure before this big and rustic presence had the frail slenderness of a reed addressing an oak. And indeed, the unbroken record of that man's descent surpassed in the number of centuries the age of the oldest oak in the country. "'No. As far as one can be positive about anything, I can assure you that it is not.' "'Yes. But your idea of assurance is over there,' said the great man, with a contemptuous wave of his hand towards a window giving on to the broad thoroughfare. "'Seems to consist mainly in making the Secretary of State look a fool. I have been told positively in this very room less than a month ago 
but nothing of the sort was even possible. The Assistant Commissioner glanced in the direction of the window calmly. "'You will allow me to remark, Sir Ethelred, that so far I have had no opportunity to give you assurances of any kind.' The haughty droop of the eyes was focused now upon the Assistant Commissioner. "'True,' confessed the deep, smooth voice. "'I sent for heat. You are still rather a novice in your new birth. And how are you getting on over there?' I believe I am learning something every day." "'Of course, of course. I hope you will get on.' "'Thank you, Sir Ethelred. I've learned something to-day, and even within the last hour or so. There is much in this affair of a kind that does not meet the eye in a usual anarchist outrage, even if one looked into it as deep as can be. That is why I am here.' The great man put his arms akimbo, the backs of his big hands resting on his hips. "'Very well. Go on. Only no details, pray. Spare me the details.' "'You shall not be troubled with them, Sir Ethelred,' the Assistant Commissioner began, with a calm and untroubled assurance. While he was speaking, the hands on the face of the clock behind the great man's back—a heavy, glistening affair of massive scrolls, in the same dark marble as the mantelpiece, and with a ghostly, evanescent tick had moved through the space of seven minutes. He spoke with a studious fidelity to a parenthetical manner, into which every little fact—that is, every detail—fitted with delightful ease. Not a murmur, nor even a movement hinted at interruption. The great personage might have been the statue of one of his own princely ancestors, stripped of a crusader's war-harness, and put into an ill-fitting frock-coat. The Assistant Commissioner felt as though he were at liberty to talk for an hour. But he kept his head, and at the end of the time mentioned above he broke off with a sudden conclusion, which, reproducing the opening statement, pleasantly surprised Sir Ethelred by its apparent swiftness and force. The kind of thing which meets us under the surface of this affair, otherwise without gravity, is unusual, in this precise form at least, and requires special treatment. The tone of Sir Ethelred was deepened, full of conviction. "'I should think so, involving the ambassador of a foreign power.' "'Oh, the ambassador,' protested the other, erect and slender, allowing himself a mere half-smile. "'It would be stupid of me to advance anything of the kind. And it is absolutely unnecessary, because if I am right in my surmises, whether ambassador or hall-porter, it's a mere detail.' Sir Ethelred opened a wide mouth, like a cavern, into which the hooked nose seemed anxious to peer. There came from it a subdued rolling sound, as from a distant organ with the scornful indignation stop. "'No! These people are too impossible! What do they mean by importing their methods of crim tartary here? A Turk would have more decency.' "'You forget, Sir Ethelred, that strictly speaking we know nothing positively, as yet. No. But how would you define it? Shortly. Barefaced audacity, amounting to childishness of a peculiar sort. We can't put up with the innocence of nasty little children," said the great and expanded personage, expanding a little more, as it were. The haughty, drooping glance struck crushingly the carpet at the Assistant Commissioner's feet. They'll have to get a hard rap on the knuckles over this affair. We must be in a position to— what is your general idea, stated shortly? No need to go into details. 
No, Sir Ethelred, in principle I should lay it down that the existence of secret agents should not be tolerated, as tending to augment the positive dangers of the evil against which they are used. That the spy will fabricate his information is a mere commonplace. But, in the sphere of political and revolutionary action, relying partly on violence, the professional spy has every facility to fabricate the very facts themselves, and will spread the double evil of emulation in one direction, and of panic, hasty legislation, unreflecting hate on the other. However, this is an imperfect world. The deep-voiced presence on the hearth-rug, motionless, with big elbows stuck out, said hastily, "'Be lucid, please.' "'Yes, Sir Ethelred. An imperfect world. Therefore, directly the character of this affair suggested itself to me, I thought it should be dealt with with special secrecy, and ventured to come over here.' "'That's right,' approved the great personage, glancing down complacently over his double chin. "'I am glad there's somebody over at your shop who thinks that the Secretary of State may be trusted now and then.' The Assistant Commissioner had an amused smile. "'I was really thinking that it might be better at this stage for Heat to be replaced by—what? Heat? An ass, eh?' exclaimed the great man, with distinct animosity. "'Not at all. Pray, Sir Ethelred, don't put that unjust interpretation on my remarks.' "'Then what? Too clever by half?' "'Neither, at least not as a rule. All the grounds of my surmises I have from him. The only thing I've discovered by myself is that he has been making use of that man privately. Who could blame him? He's an old police hand. He told me virtually that he must have tools to work with. It occurred to me that this tool should be surrendered to the Special Crimes Division as a whole, instead of remaining the private property of Chief Inspector Heat. I extend my conception of our departmental duties to the suppression of the secret agent. But Chief Inspector Heat is an old departmental hand. He would accuse me of perverting its morality and attacking its efficiency. He would define it bitterly as protection extended to the criminal class of revolutionists. It would mean just that to him." "'Yes. But what do you mean?' "'I mean to say, first, that there's but poor comfort in being able to declare that any given act of violence, damaging property or destroying life, is not the work of anarchism at all, but of something else altogether some species of authorised scoundrelism. This, I fancy, is much more frequent than we suppose. Next, it's obvious that the existence of these people, in the pay of foreign governments, destroys in a measure the efficiency of our supervision. A spy of that sort can afford to be more reckless than the most reckless of conspirators. His occupation is free from all restraint. He's without as much faith as is necessary for complete negation and without that much law as is implied in lawlessness. Thirdly, the existence of these spies amongst the revolutionary groups, which we are reproached for harbouring here, does away with all certitude. You have received a reassuring statement from Chief Inspector Heat some time ago. It was by no means groundless, and yet this episode happens. I call it an episode, because this affair, I make bold to say, is episodic, it is no part of any general scheme, however wild. The very peculiarities which surprise and perplex Chief Inspector Heat establish its character in my eyes. I am keeping clear of details, Sir Ethelred." The personage on the hearth-rug had been listening with profound attention. "'Just so. Be as concise as you can.' 
the assistant commissioner intimated by an earnest deferential gesture that he was anxious to be concise. There is a peculiar stupidity and feebleness in the conduct of this affair, which gives me excellent hopes of getting behind it, and finding there something else than an individual freak of fanaticism. For it is a planned thing, undoubtedly. The actual perpetrator seems to have been led by the hand to the spot, and then abandoned hurriedly to his own devices. The inference is that he was imported from abroad for the purpose of committing this outrage. At the same time one is forced to the conclusion that he did not know enough English to ask his way, unless one were to accept the fantastic theory that he was a deaf-mute. I wonder now—but this is idle. He has destroyed himself by an accident, obviously. Not an extraordinary accident. But an extraordinary little fact remains—the address on his clothing, discovered by the merest accident, too. It is an incredible little fact, so incredible that the explanation which will account for it is bound to touch the bottom of this affair. Instead of instructing Heat to go on with this case, my intention is to seek this explanation personally—by myself, I mean—where it may be picked up. That is, in a certain shop in Brett Street, and on the lips of a certain secret agent, once upon a time the confidential and trusted spy of the late Baron Stott-Wartenheim ambassador of a great power to the court of St. James." The assistant commissioner paused, then added, "'Those fellows are a perfect pest.' In order to raise his drooping glance to the speaker's face, the personage on the hearth-rug had gradually tilted his head farther back, which gave him an aspect of extraordinary haughtiness. "'Why not leave it to heat?' "'Because he is an old departmental hand. They have their own morality.' My line of inquiry would appear to him an awful perversion of duty. For him, the plain duty is to fasten the guilt upon as many prominent anarchists as he can, on some slight indications he had picked up in the course of his investigation on the spot. Whereas I, he would say, am bent upon vindicating their innocence. I am trying to be as lucid as I can in presenting this obscure matter to you without details." He would, would he? muttered the proud head of Sir Ethelred from its lofty elevation. I am afraid so, with an indignation and disgust of which you or I can have no idea. He's an excellent servant. We must not put an undue strain on his loyalty. That's always a mistake. Besides, I want a free hand—a freer hand than it would perhaps be advisable to give Chief Inspector Heat. I haven't the slightest wish to spare this man Verloc. He will, I imagine, be extremely startled to find his connection with this affair, whatever it may be brought home to him so quickly. Frightening him will not be very difficult. But our true objective lies behind him somewhere. I want your authority to give him such assurances of personal safety as I may think proper." "'Certainly,' said the personage on the hearth-rug. "'Find out as much as you can. Find it out in your own way.' "'I must set about it without loss of time this very evening,' said the Assistant Commissioner. Sir Ethelred shifted one hand under his coat-tails, and tilting back his head, looked at him steadily. "'We'll have a late sitting to-night,' he said. "'Come to the house with your discoveries, if we are not gone home. I'll warn Toodles to look out for you. He'll take you into my room.' The numerous family and the wide connections of the youthful-looking private secretary cherished for him the hope of an austere and exalted destiny. Meantime, the social sphere he adorned in his hours of idleness chose to pet him under the above nickname, and Sir Ethelred, 
hearing it on the lips of his wife and girls every day, mostly at breakfast-time, had conferred upon it the dignity of unsmiling adoption. The assistant commissioner was surprised and gratified extremely. "'I shall certainly bring my discoveries to the house on the chance of you having the time to—' "'I won't have the time,' interrupted the great personage. "'But I will see you. I haven't the time now. And you are going yourself?' "'Yes, Sir Ethelred, I think it the best way.' The personage had tilted his head so far back that, in order to keep the assistant commissioner under his observation, he had to nearly close his eyes. "'Hm! Ha! And how do you propose? Will you assume a disguise?' "'Hardly a disguise. I'll change my clothes, of course.' "'Of course,' repeated the great man, with a sort of absent-minded loftiness. He turned his big head slowly, and over his shoulder gave a haughty, oblique stare to the ponderous marble timepiece, with the sly, feeble tick. The gilt hands had taken the opportunity to steal through no less than five-and-twenty minutes behind his back. The assistant commissioner, who could not see them, grew a little nervous in the interval. But the great man presented to him a calm and undismayed face. "'Very well,' he said, and paused, as if in deliberate contempt of the official clock. "'But what first put you in motion in this direction?' "'I have always been of opinion.' began the assistant commissioner. Ah, yes, opinion, that's of course. But the immediate motive. What shall I say, Sir Ethelred? A new man's antagonism to old methods, a desire to know something at first hand, some impatience. It's my old work, but the harness is different. It has been chafing me a little in one or two tender places. I hope you'll get on over there, said the great man kindly extending his hand, soft to the touch, but broad and powerful like the hand of a glorified farmer. The assistant commissioner shook it and withdrew. In the outer room, Toodles, who had been waiting perched on the edge of a table, advanced to meet him, subduing his natural buoyancy. "'Well, satisfactory?' he asked, with airy importance. "'Perfectly. You've earned my undying gratitude.' answered the assistant commissioner, whose long face looked wooden in contrast with the peculiar character of the other's gravity, which seemed perpetually ready to break into ripples and chuckles. "'That's all right. But seriously, you can't imagine how irritated he is by the attacks on his bill for the nationalisation of fisheries. They call it the beginning of social revolution. Of course it is a revolutionary measure. But these fellows have no decency. The personal attacks. I read the papers," remarked the assistant commissioner. Oh, do you say? And you have no notion what a mass of work he has got to get through every day. He does it all himself, seems unable to trust any one with these fisheries. And yet he's given a whole half-hour to the consideration of my very small sprat," interjected the assistant commissioner. Small? Is it? I'm glad to hear that. But it's a pity you didn't keep away, then. This fight takes it out of him frightfully. The man's getting exhausted. I feel it by the way he leans on my arm as we walk over. And I say, is he safe in the streets? Mullins has been marching his men up here this afternoon. There's a constable stuck by every lamp-post, and every second person we meet between this and Palace Yard is an obvious tech. It will get on his nerves presently. I say, 
These foreign scoundrels aren't likely to throw something at him, are they? It would be a national calamity. The country can't spare him." "'Not to mention yourself. He leans on your arm,' suggested the Assistant Commissioner soberly. "'You would both go?' "'It would be an easy way for a young man to go down into history. Not so many British ministers have been assassinated as to make it a minor incident. But seriously now. I am afraid that if you want to go down into history you'll have to do something for it. Seriously, there's no danger whatever for both of you but from overwork." The sympathetic Toodles welcomed this opportunity for a chuckle. "'The fisheries won't kill me. I am used to late hours,' he declared with ingenuous levity. But, feeling an instant compunction, he began to assume an air of statesmanlike moodiness, as one draws on a glove. His massive intellect will stand any amount of work. It's his nerves that I am afraid of. The revolutionary gang, with that abusive brute cheeseman at their head, insult him every night." "'If he will insist upon beginning a revolution,' murmured the Assistant Commissioner. "'The time has come, and he is the only man great enough for the work,' protested the revolutionary Toodles, flaring up under the calm, speculative gaze of the Assistant Commissioner. Somewhere in a corridor a distant bell tinkled urgently, and with devoted vigilance the young man pricked up his ears at the sound. "'He's ready to go now,' he exclaimed in a whisper, snatched up his hat and vanished from the room. The Assistant Commissioner went out by another door in a less elastic manner. Again he crossed the wide thoroughfare, walked along a narrow street, and re-entered hastily his own departmental buildings. He kept up this accelerated pace to the door of his private room. Before he had closed it fairly his eyes sought his desk. He stood still for a moment, then walked up, looked all round on the floor, sat down in his chair, rang a bell, and waited. "'Chief Inspector Heat gone yet?' "'Yes, sir. Went away half an hour ago.' He nodded. "'That will do.' And sitting still, with his hat pushed off his forehead, he thought that it was just like Heat's confounded cheek to carry off quietly the only piece of material evidence. But he thought this without animosity. Old and valued servants will take liberties. The piece of overcoat with the address sewn on was certainly not a thing to leave about. Dismissing from his mind this manifestation of Chief Inspector Heat's mistrust, he wrote and dispatched a note to his wife, charging her to make his apologies to Michaelis's great lady with whom they were engaged to dine that evening. The short jacket and the low round hat he assumed in a sort of curtained alcove, containing a washstand, a row of wooden pegs and a shelf, brought out wonderfully the length of his grave brown face. He stepped back into the full light of the room, looking like the vision of a cool, reflective Don Quixote, with the sunken eyes of a dark enthusiast, and a very deliberate manner. He left the scene of his daily labours quickly, like an unobtrusive shadow. His descent into the street was like the descent into a slimy aquarium, from which the water had been run off. A murky, gloomy dampness enveloped him. The walls of the houses were wet, the mud of the roadway glistened with an effect of phosphorescence, and when he emerged into the strand out of a narrow street by the side of Charing Cross Station, the genius of the locality assimilated him. He might have been but one more of the queer foreign fish that can be seen of an evening about there, flitting round the dark corners. 
he came to a stand on the very edge of the pavement and waited. His exercised eyes had made out, in the confused movements of lights and shadows thronging the roadway, the crawling approach of a hansom. He gave no sign, but when the low step, gliding along the curbstone, came to his feet, he dodged in skilfully in front of the big turning wheel, and spoke up through the little trap-door almost before the man gazing supinely ahead from his perch was aware of having been boarded by a fare. It was not a long drive. It ended by signal abruptly, nowhere in particular, between two lamp-posts before a large drapery establishment, a long range of shops already lapped up in sheets of corrugated iron for the night. Tendering a coin through the trap-door, the fare slipped out and away, leaving an effect of uncanny, eccentric ghastliness upon the driver's mind. But the size of the coin was satisfactory to his touch, and his education not being literary, he remained untroubled by the fear of finding it presently turned to a dead leaf in his pocket. Raised above the world of fares by the nature of his calling, he contemplated their actions with a limited interest. The sharp pulling of his horse right round expressed his philosophy. Meantime, the assistant commissioner was already giving his order to a waiter in a little Italian restaurant round the corner, one of those traps for the hungry, long and narrow, baited with a perspective of mirrors and white napery, without air but with an atmosphere of their own, an atmosphere of fraudulent cookery mocking an abject mankind in the most pressing of its miserable necessities. In this immoral atmosphere, the assistant commissioner, reflecting upon his enterprise, seemed to lose some more of his identity. He had a sense of loneliness, of evil freedom. It was rather pleasant. When, after paying for his short meal, he stood up and waited for his change, he saw himself in the sheet of glass, and was struck by his foreign appearance. He contemplated his own image with a melancholy and inquisitive gaze, then, by sudden inspiration, raised the collar of his jacket. This arrangement appeared to him commendable, and he completed it by giving an upward twist to the ends of his black moustache. He was satisfied by the subtle modification of his personal aspect caused by these small changes. "'That'll do very well,' he thought. "'I'll get a little wet, a little splashed.' He became aware of the waiter at his elbow, and of a small pile of silver coins on the edge of the table before him. The waiter kept one eye on it while his other eye followed the long back of a tall, not very young girl, who passed up to a distant table, looking perfectly sightless and altogether unapproachable. She seemed to be a habitual customer. On going out, the assistant commissioner made to himself the observation that the patrons of the place had lost in the frequentation of fraudulent cookery all their national and private characteristics. And this was strange since the Italian restaurant is such a peculiarly British institution. But these people were as denationalized as the dishes set before them with every circumstance of unstamped respectability. Neither was their personality stamped in any way, professionally, socially, or racially. They seemed created for the Italian restaurant, unless the Italian restaurant had been, perchance, created for them. But that last hypothesis was unthinkable since one could not place them anywhere outside those special establishments. One never met these enigmatical persons elsewhere. It was impossible to form a precise idea what occupations they followed by day, and where they went to bed at night. 
and he himself had become unplaced. It would have been impossible for anybody to guess his occupation. As to going to bed, there was a doubt even in his own mind. Not, indeed, in regard to his domicile itself, but very much so in respect of the time when he would be able to return there. A pleasurable feeling of independence possessed him, when he heard the glass doors swing to behind his back, with a sort of imperfect baffled thud. He advanced at once into an immensity of greasy slime and damp plaster, interspersed with lamps, and enveloped, oppressed, penetrated, choked, and suffocated by the blackness of a wet London night, which is composed of soot and drops of water. Brett Street was not very far away. It branched off, narrow, from the side of an open triangular space, surrounded by dark and mysterious houses, temples of petty commerce emptied of traders for the night. Only a fruiterer's stall at the corner made a violent blaze of light and colour. Beyond all was black, and the few people passing in that direction vanished at one stride, beyond the glowing heaps of oranges and lemons. No footsteps echoed. They would never be heard of again. The adventurous head of the Special Crimes Department watched these disappearances from a distance, with an interested eye. He felt light-hearted, as though he had been ambushed all alone in a jungle many thousands of miles away from departmental desks and official inkstands. This joyousness and dispersion of thought before a task of some importance seems to prove that this world of ours is not such a very serious affair after all, for the Assistant Commissioner was not constitutionally inclined to levity. The policeman on the beat projected his sombre and moving form against the luminous glory of oranges and lemons, and entered Brett Street without haste. The Assistant Commissioner, as though he were a member of the criminal classes, lingered out of sight, awaiting his return. But this constable seemed to be lost for ever to the force. He never returned, must have gone out at the other end of Brett Street. The Assistant Commissioner, reaching this conclusion, entered the street in his turn, and came upon a large van arrested in front of the dimly lit window-panes of a carter's eating-house. The man was refreshing himself inside, and the horses, their big heads lowered to the ground, fed out of nose-bags steadily. Farther on, on the opposite side of the street, another suspect patch of dim light issued from Mr. Verloc's shop-front, hung with papers, heaving with vague piles of cardboard boxes and the shapes of books. The assistant commissioner stood observing it across the roadway. There could be no mistake. By the side of the front window, encumbered by the shadows of nondescript things, the door, standing ajar, let escape on the pavement a narrow, clear streak of gaslight within. Behind the assistant commissioner, the van and horses, merged into one mass, seemed something alive, a square-backed black monster blocking half the street, with sudden iron-shod stampings, fierce jingles and heavy blowing sighs. The harshly festive, ill-omened glare of a large and prosperous public-house faced the other end of Brett Street across a wide road. This barrier of blazing lights, opposing the shadows gathered about the humble abode of Mr. Verloc's domestic happiness, seemed to drive the obscurity of the street back upon itself, make it more sullen, brooding, and sinister. End of section 7
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.